This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, and now an online store with the new Squarespace Commerce feature. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com trek and use offer code TREK4. You're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks our dedicated star trek books and comics podcast i'm christopher jones and with me as he is every week is my esteemed co-host matthew rushing matthew how are you doing this week well chris um again Worf and his extremist group have been at it with the weather control systems here in Dallas. Unfortunately, uh, whereas yesterday I was wearing a nice pair of shorts, um, today I was bundled up in a parka because it was cold and rainy. And so I'm very disappointed with Mr. Worf and his extremist group. Yeah, he's affecting the entire planet. I'm the same way here you know, it was it was warm a couple of days ago. Today, I'm wearing a, a turtleneck, which I usually wear in the winter to help keep warm. And uh, it's just, it's really chilly and it's April and I don't know what's going on. But uh, just cut it out, Worf. We're sick of it. Yeah. Uh, can we get Dax in the bathing suit to go talk to him so he can stop this mess? Jeez. I think that's what we need to do. Yeah. yeah. But, but not Curzon. <laughs> let's, let's send Jadzia. Yeah, definitely, yeah, not Curzon. I don't want to see Curzon in a One Piece. You know, it's disturbing. Um, you don't want to know. <laughs> you just don't want to know. <laughs> well, what's what's not disturbing, Matthew, is some of the book news we have this week. So why don't we go ahead and jump in and uh, talk to everyone about some books, some comics. We're going to review Countdown to Darkness number four today as well. And then in the feature, we're going to be joined by none other than Greg Cox. But before we get to that, Matthew, we've talked about the fall quite a bit. Uh, James Swallow gave us a great preview of the fall last week. And what kind of fall news do we have this week? Well, we had a lot of fall news come out, actually, uh, about the first three books. We've had um, the blurb for David R. George's Revelations in Dust uh, that's going to be coming up for a while now. But they really set up nicely uh, what's going to be happening with the Enterprise-E and its mission to Cardassia and Una McCormick's The Crimson Shadow, which, as when we talked to her on The Orb the other week, I'm very excited because this book is going to be featuring Garrick as well as, of course, Picard. And so having those two powerhouses together, I don't know if I could be more excited about a storyline. Let me ask you this question, Matthew. Uh, I'm really excited about the fall. Now, I have not read every single novel in the 
expanded Star Trek universe over the past few years because there are so many of them and they've become so intertwined. And, you know, I feel like I have to read this one before I read this one. And you have that amazing chart, actually, that shows kind of the paths you should follow. If people want to get prepared for the fall, do you feel that they need to have read... Getting my chart out. Sorry, Chris. Sorry about the noise. Just getting. I'm unrolling <laughs> That's what's it. What's going it's, on there? Yep. It's uh. It's like a huge parchment. Um. Yes. Okay. Well, now that you have the chart there, do if people want to get prepared for the fall, do you feel like they need to have read everything? Are there key novels that people should read so that they're uh, clued in on the storyline so that this is going to make sense to them? You know, the uh, fall series, I would say, if you wanted to get ready for that, um, there are the books in the Typhon Pack series, um, and uh, they'll have the header Typhon Pact on there. So you have Zero Sum Game, uh, Rough Beasts of Empire, uh, Plagues of Night, Raise the Dawn, Brinkmanship. Of course, David Mack's latest series, Cold Equations would be important to read because that's the continuation of what's happening with Picard and his crew uh, and then stuff of dreams. And then you will have the latest uh, series in the fall. This is, uh, that's that's really the, the least that you would need to read. And I, I forgot to mention, sorry, um, you would also need to read Paths of Disharmony as well um, and The Struggle Within, which is a short e-novel. Um, Paths of Har- Disharmony was about... Uh, the Andorian incident, basically, that's been going on with their race. Uh, and so it also actually ties back into if anybody has read Vanguard. Um, and so those are just, let's see, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve books um, that you'd want to read uh, to really just kind of have that background knowledge of what's going on in the fall. Uh, as James had said, it's going to be a big political thriller. It's going to be really kind of the the end-all, be-all, and, and the kind of the closing of one season and the beginning of a next will start. And so um, that would really set you up well if you read the Typhon Pact books, and you'll see their label uh, when you're at the bookstore or uh, just uh, browsing on um, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Also, if you're wanting to see the flowchart that I am looking at, you can actually get that over at the trekcollective.com. Uh, I use them all the time. They're fantastic for a lot of our news that we get for the show and share. Um, and this is probably, I think, the most concise way to keep track of how everything connects in the Star Trek universe without being, you know, just completely flabbergasted. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very, very helpful. Things have become so complex. Okay, so that's so that's a lot of books to read um, if you haven't read them yet. But uh, it's nice to have that kind of guide there. It's a real shame, I will say still, that there aren't audio versions of each novel as they come out. Because, you know, for a lot of us, I don't commute myself, but many of our listeners I know have long commutes to work. I do go on walks every day, so I have long walks every day to get out of the studio and if there were audio versions you know not only could we work through all those novels that you just listed very efficiently but we could go through them two or three times and, and really really soak them up before the fall comes out so we're going to keep we're going to keep pushing i would say we're going to keep pushing audible but it's not really up to them it's up to 
CBS and Pocketbooks to, to make it happen. But um, if you want to have audio versions of books, uh, go on Twitter, go online and uh, send email and write to Pocketbooks in particular. And uh, if they know that there's a demand for them, they can then kind of twist the arm of CBS and say, look, this is something there's a demand for. We should really look into this again because they used to do a lot of them and they were wonderful. Yeah. And this is a great, uh, I mean, these books are fantastic. Uh, you know, these are actually some of the best Star Trek books that have been written in the last, you know, 10 so years. It's it's really good what Pocket is doing with this uh, these different series. And uh, I think they would be fantastic in audiobook uh, format. And of course, we know there are plenty of our listeners who... Um, this is this would be their preferred format, and uh, especially yeah. our, our listener Paula, who who can't read because she's blind, and so uh, I think it's a disservice to those type of fans that uh, would love to be a part of this. Most definitely, because I've even been finding on some of the Kindle editions of some of the recent books that the text to speech is disabled, which I think is a real a real shame because that's merely doing a disservice to people who actually need that text-to-speech just to be able to partake of the experience. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's definitely a uh, a technology that should get better more quickly because then if there isn't an audiobook, you would be able to actually get the book mm-hmm. and then hear it uh, and have it read yeah. to you in a pleasant voice. I mean, so, you know, just get a nice uh, person to record great voice for this and get it done are you saying that you would like to have every star trek audiobook read by grand nagus zek you know uh (laughs) i was gonna say grand nagus zek but uh actually the first thing that came to mind and and since you and colin had mentioned it on the ready room so much i I was really thinking of obviously (laughs) alice eve in her underwear uh reading reading every book exactly since she will be reading the into darkness audiobook um yes i think she would do a fantastic job um you know reading the crimson shadow by una mccormick or we did get to get back on schedule here chris uh the blurb for david mack's book uh, a ceremony of losses and this is really going to pick up what's been going on with the andorians and their species uh, their wonderful fighting species the one that cannot seem to stop having andorian fight scenes um is slowly moving towards extinction uh, because of their being a four-sexed race um, and things just not going right there. So uh, a lot of things are going to go down. Dr. Julian Bashir is going to be on this case uh, like he has been on so many cases before. And uh, his courage, it says, may come at a terrible cost. So this book looks fantastic. And, uh, you know, Having some characters mixed in uh, like Bashir in this, I think it's going to be really good. That sounds very interesting. Exploring the fact that the Andorians have four unique sexes is interesting because it is one of those tidbits that gets thrown out there on screen in Star Trek, but never really explored. And that's a very interesting angle and to see how that plays into affecting the race as well. Yeah, this is... I think this is one of those things, uh, this series, they've really brought together some really interesting ideas, um, and not just politically, but um, 
the repercussions for some of these things that have been going on for so long finally coming to a head. So again, very excited about this series. I think it's going to be um, just a watershed event for, for Trek books. And so um, I would encourage if, if you do need some help um, wanting to know what to read before this series, you know, hit me up on Twitter. Um, you know, we'll start, maybe I'll start a thread in the forum just kind of letting you know the order of the books that would be helpful before the fall comes out. Um, and uh, But definitely let me know so I can help you out with that. Yeah, that, that, that's a great idea. Uh, we also have some book news for Enterprise fans. And, and I think, as we were talking about before the show, not only for Enterprise fans, but for Star Trek fans in general. Now, this is Christopher Bennett's Rise of the Federation series. And now there's a second book that's already been announced that's going to be coming out early next year, even though the first one is not out quite yet. But, you know, this fills in some of those gaps in the history of the Federation that we don't know about. We talk about, you know, how do you get from our present day from uh, first contact with the Vulcans to the Federation? How does all that play out? And uh, this book, Tower of Babel, is going to move the story of the Federation's early years forward into 2164. And I think even if you're not an Enterprise fan per se, this is a story that should be of great interest to you as a Star Trek fan in general. Yeah, I am was blown away when I saw this news that uh, Pocket obviously has enough faith in this series and in Christopher Bennett to move ahead and give them a uh, second book. Uh, I do hope that this will be one that's, you know, maybe four or five, six books. I think this could be fantastic, really, watching the Enterprise characters grow, um, you know, seeing where they go after the Romulan War, getting to see, you know, Archer be uh, an admiral, you know, he we know he's an uh, um, ambassador as well to Andoria. Um, there'll be lots of Andorian fight scenes, um, with Shran, I'm sure, taking his blood back to Andoria. And then, of course, you know, seeing him been, be Federation president as well. I just think that would be uh, fantastic to get to finally see all those events. And then, too, just watching the Federation grow um, into what it uh, becomes and what we know as the NTOS. Um, and, you know, even the geek in me is really excited, I think, and hopefully uh, this will be answered a little bit, you know, what is it that really creates that change in um, technology and what it looks like? And they answer that a little bit in the Romulan War series, but really furthering that exploration, I think, would be really, really cool to see. That would be cool. Yeah. And Bennett says that in this book, he will get to explore some new worlds and new characters that were not well explored in canon or literature up to this point that he managed to do in book one. So if you want to see that expansion of diversity within the Federation, it appears that there will be a good bit of that in the Tower of Babel as well. Definitely. Definitely something to uh, really be excited about. So, uh, you know, when doing this show, I think one of the things is that uh, I'm seeing there's so much to be excited about to be a Star Trek fan, uh, especially right now in the Prime Universe with uh, the novels and so I really do hope that fans will continue to support uh, the novel universe and uh, just what's happening there and these authors because this is great work 
and you will not be disappointed. Definitely not. All right, well, let's move into comic news a little bit. That's all we have on books for this week. Uh, Comics Countdown to Darkness number four has been released as of uh, today as we're recording this show. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. We had a chance to read it uh, last week, and we'll share our thoughts on that. Uh, Before we do that, we have two other comic items to go over. One of them, of course, is the Countdown to Darkness trade paperback, which will be coming out April 23rd for $17.99. So if you've been holding off on Countdown to Darkness and you don't have the standalones, this will be your chance to just pick up all four issues together in one package. And we also have here, Matthew, the Star Trek Space Spanning Treasury Edition. I'm really excited to see this, Chris. Um, I'm planning on going to my local bookstore this weekend and seeing if I can find a copy of this because this is going to be a comic that's in a larger format. And we have the Return of the Archons as well as the Red Shirt story. And uh, especially Return of the Archons has some fantastic artwork in it. I'm definitely excited to see this in a larger format. Um, it's uh, nine and a quarter by fourteen and a quarter in size. Uh, you know, seventy-two pages, only nine ninety-nine, and so this is not a bad deal. And so I'm really excited to go see this and and see what this looks like, and and just get to see that artwork in a larger format. Yeah, some of the artwork from Return of the Archon, especially when they're underground, where they have the saucer section from the Archon, is sort of like a like right. an altar underground. Really, really beautiful illustration work. So I, I'm totally with you there. I would love to see that in the larger format as well. Okay, so that's coming out. And uh, then the other thing we have to talk about is Countdown to Darkness number four. But Matthew, before we do that, let's take a quick break here to tell everyone about our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way for you to create a personal blog, a website, a portfolio, or even an online store with the new Squarespace commerce feature. And, you know, one of the things I love about Squarespace so much is the fact that it's it's a system that you use entirely in your browser. It's hosting and it's CMS all in one for an incredibly low price. And you don't even have to worry about complex software like Dreamweaver. You don't have to worry about creating multiple versions of your artwork in Photoshop to put them on your website uh, because you manage everything in your browser with images. It's a simple drag and drop interface. If you want to put an image on your page, you drag it into your browser window. Squarespace creates seven different sizes of your image on the fly and then intelligently uses those within the framework of your site so that your image appears just the way you want it in any situation. Well, one of the things that I really like as well is this. uh, If you have a blog already somewhere else, Chris, uh, you can import that content from, say, WordPress or Tumblr or Blogger or one of the other places and just seamlessly import that into Squarespace. And, you know, instead of having to go and rebuild everything, uh, which is so frustrating, you know, and it it definitely keeps you from wanting to kind of move your blog or your website somewhere else, um, Squarespace has just made that as simple as possible. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. And, And it's great because when you sign up, you get access to all the tools 
free for 14 days. You don't even need to give them a credit card. And when you import it, as you're saying, Matthew, you can see exactly what the site's going to look like in there. And then you could use the tools to tweak it and uh, create your own look and feel based on some of the amazing professionally designed templates. And and you can do all this while your your site is still there on the other platform. So there's no disruption. And it, it makes it so, so easy for you to take all the work that you've done in the past on your site and just bring it right on over. Uh, Matthew, today we want to talk about three items that we haven't talked about before on here. One of them is a new feature, and then there are two new templates. And the new feature that we want to tell everyone about is the calendars feature. And, you know, this is great for if you're a writer, for example, maybe you write short stories, maybe you write novels, maybe just write, you know, for fun. I I used to do this for a long time. I wrote um, a column called Science Fiction and Society many, many years ago. And I actually had a calendar on there because I had planned out my article schedule and I wanted people to know when I'm going to release things. And uh, with the calendar feature, you can actually create either a list view or a calendar view. And the great thing about this is you don't have to worry about creating a table, for example, as you know I would have done in the past with the tool like Dreamweaver. You just pull down the calendar block, you put it on your page, you fill in the information, and Squarespace does all the rest for you. And I think one of the other cool things, Chris, with this calendar is that you can add events uh, to your website by clicking to add a page uh, to your website manager. You can select the events. You can also um, add each event that you would like on your blog entry by adding additional information with your dates, URLs. You can put images, thumbnail images in there, even products from your store if you're using the commerce feature, which is so uh, nice here on Squarespace. And then you can easily push that uh, event information to social media channels. And you can also share the events on things like Google Calendar or iCal, which is so important these days with so many people using these online calendar features. And so just really making it simple to be able to take your calendar on your Squarespace site and make it functional with everything else in your life. Most definitely. Yeah, it's great having that integration between your site and those calendar tools like Google Calendar or iCal, most definitely. Another thing that is new that uh, just launched this month is a new template design called Adirondack, which uh, is not a character from David Mack's new book, even though it sounds like one. It's actually just (laughs) the name of this great new template that is perfect for an online store. So again, if you're going to look into the commerce feature, if you want to sell if if you're a business and you have items to sell, or if you're just an individual and you and you make crafts or you write, you know you want to sell uh, any of your own products there. Adirondack is a great option. It's a it's a very clean site, uh, minimal navigation. It has great full header images, and it's just a very bold framework for your company or your brand. Uh, it has a, a really cool effect with the very large image uh, as you load the page. And as you scroll down, and it fades away and it reveals the rest of the page. I, I really love this fade out effect. It, it looks so professional. And it's built into the template, so you don't need to figure out how to do this yourself. You just go there and and uh, and use this. And then you can make adjustments to the template as well. Uh, it's got uh, pre-built pages for your contact information, for your catalog, for your shipping information. Very, very easy to use. 
now, if you don't want to build a store, maybe you want to share your photography, maybe you want to share more of your creative work, or you just want to have a personal blog, there's also a new template called Momentum. And I like Momentum so much that I just recently changed the design of my personal website from what I was using before to Momentum. What I like about the Momentum, Chris, is that it's a really flexible design uh, built uh, specifically for photographers and designers in mind who really want to showcase their work. And I know that you, uh, as a designer, this is really important. Uh, You want this template to to really showcase your portfolio, giving you that cinematic feel, uh, full bleed image display, or even preserving the original resolution and visual integrity uh, of an image so you can get that center display. Uh, it gives it that um, that feel that you've spent hours when really Squarespace has done all the work for you. Definitely. Yeah, th- this is important for me because I have so many different types of work and all that I want to display. And so this multi-index feature is, is another reason why I have chosen to switch my personal site over to Momentum. So we'd like to invite you to try Adirondack, Momentum, the calendar feature, the commerce feature, all the great features of Squarespace, free for 14 days. Squarespace has a special offer for Trek FM listeners. If you use the offer code TREK4, you'll get 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts. And if you choose the annual option, Squarespace will actually register a custom domain for you for free. It's included as part of the package. It's very easy to get that set up. So you can go there, Matthew. You can get matthewrushing.com very easily. Uh, just in a matter of minutes, you're up and running. It's really fantastic. Now, the pricing is extremely affordable. It's $8 for the basic package, which has most of the things that you know the average person would need for a personal site, for sure. For $16, you have the unlimited package, and for $24, the business package, which includes everything in unlimited, plus the amazing commerce features. And the way you try this out is you just go to squarespace.com slash trek, and you enter the offer code TREK4 when you sign up and you'll get 10% off and you'll be supporting our sponsor and you'll be helping us bring literary treks to you every week. So Matthew, let's jump in to Countdown to Darkness number four. And this is a big spoiler warning for everyone. If you haven't read the comic yet, you may want to pause, grab it, read through it, or skip over this chapter. Go straight into our interview with Greg Cox and come back to this after you've read the comic. Matthew, I was thrilled with Countdown to Darkness number four. What did you think about this? Well, I, man, Chris, I'm, I'm really speechless. When I read this comic, obviously I'm set up for the film now. I am completely ready to go with uh, Into Darkness, but I am also just overflowing with questions about what is going on because you can tell when you read this comic that there is still so much going on behind the scenes that you don't know about. I'm wondering about Starfleet intelligence. I'm wondering about Starfleet itself and what in the world is, it seems like it has a seedy underbelly, honestly. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, Yeah. I'm wondering about the Klingons. How in the world are they really going to be involved in the film because they're here a little bit. Uh, and then I also have to wonder, you know, um, what is, is Harrison? Who is Harrison? And, and how is he involved in all of this? Because he is seen, spoiler warning again, 
at the very last page of the comic. So, yes, this this comic I think sets up the film beautifully. It does. Yeah, the the last page again. Spoiler alert. Um, hopefully, you stopped listening already if you haven't read this yet. On the last page, we do see John Harrison in London accessing Starfleet data archives. So they are taking us right into that bombing that uh, takes place in London. Maybe not the bombing itself immediately after what we see on the final page here, but it's definitely, those are the events leading to what happens in London. And uh, they did a fantastic job of setting up the film here leading us directly into it. If you read this, when you go in the theater, you're going to be like, okay, I know what happens up to this point. And then when the film rolls, I'm going to get my answers. But like you said, Matthew, at the same time, there are so many questions that are raised in here that I hope will be resolved in the film. Although I have a feeling that there are some questions in here that may not even be resolved in the film, but may lead over into the After Darkness series. Well, and one of the things that I'm really kind of picking up in here, Chris, we talked about that seedy underbelly that's that's happening here. I'm really getting that Deep Space Nine Section 31 feeling exactly. yeah. Um, yeah. in this new universe, which, you know, um, I know that sometimes you like to call it Space Adventure 2009. Um, <laughs> it's just for fun. There. <laughs> no, I know. And I know you mean it like that. But I really am feeling like this second film is is diving in and that, uh, you know, Orsi and Kurtzman are really kind of taking that more Deep Space Nine approach to things where it's it's going to feel a little quote unquote darker and grittier but at the same yeah. time uh it still feels like um they're just trying to craft a, a really good story here you know i think it adds some realism to the universe that we don't always get in the later star trek series uh we we get it a bit more in deep space nine because of things like section 31 because the war is going on uh we get it a little bit in the next generation i mean there were moments in the next generation where some things were going on behind the scenes, but often they were the result of some kind of alien infiltration of Starfleet. Right. We saw in Conspiracy, and that kind of ran through. Uh, It wasn't something that seemed to be persistent as sort of a dark spot within the organization itself, which we know in reality there would be because we have that in our own governments today. And I think that's human nature, and it doesn't matter how much how many problems we solve in the future as a society that's i think always going to be around because it's just it's human nature it's it's who we are as beings there are always going to be aspects of corruption like that and yeah i definitely get that feeling in here um at the end of this we were talking matthew before the show about the ending of this where pike is basically telling kirk uh, you take april you turn him over to Starfleet Intelligence, and then you just forget about this. You know, it's you're done with this. And they talk about like how many other people know. You know, what kind of what's going on? And so you definitely feel that there is something going on in Starfleet behind the scenes that Starfleet's really trying to keep secret. And it takes me back to the ongoing series when they did Return of the Archons. And at the end of the second issue of the Return of the Archon story, there's once again this conversation yes. between Pike and Kirk, and then others at Starfleet talking to Pike 
about how Kirk has really messed things up by uncovering Landru and uncovering what was going on. And Landru in the Abrams verse is a Federation scientist who had these really kind of out there ideas about society. And Matthew, do you get the feeling that there could be some connection between ongoing Return of the Archons and what's happening here with Countdown to Darkness, at least in terms of sort of cover-up and corruption and special programs, uh, maybe even playing with eugenics going on in Starfleet? Yeah, I really do. Uh, You know, we know that certain aspects of um, the ongoing series are going to be in the film. And so Return of the Archons could be one of the things that they reference. Maybe that's where Harrison comes from. Maybe he was over that program um, and, uh, you know, Kirk came in and messed it all up. And that's what this vendetta is that he has. Um, Or maybe he was a part of that program and lost half of his life because he was, you know, under the influence of this computer and that's what he can't forgive. I mean, there's so many different things that it can be. Um, and again, as you, we said earlier, this it just leaves you with a billion different questions about what's going on. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, but I love that theory, Chris. I, I think you know when you look when we read through these and you start piecing it all together and, it, and it's starting to come together. Uh, it's really showing me there's the value. Uh, I think, of the ongoing series in general and making me really glad that they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. Because even if it's not directly related, you know, maybe even if Harrison didn't have any direct contract with Landrew himself and maybe he wasn't actually involved in the Archons project itself, there could be these related secret programs within the Federation where it seems like they're really playing with uh, eugenics and mental manipulation, and they're they're playing with all these kind of dark, unethical ideas and approaches, which again I think happens in governments today, and even happens in military today. Uh, and I get that feeling that like maybe they are setting up that uh, they're they're setting up the nature of Starfleet as an organization in the Abrams verse. So it, it's possibility. And at any rate, it's really cool to think about how those might be connected. Uh, Back to this comic in particular, though, what were the standout points for you in Countdown to Darkness number four? Well, I really uh, liked this beginning. Um, I thought it was really interesting. Pike is so desperate to save um, this section of this race uh, that He's taken over the Enterprise, and he's willing to offer it to the Klingons, um, hoping that they will take you know the Federation flagship and allow him to be the governor of this uh, planet. And then that way he can, through that governorship, save um, this race that he's been fighting for so long. Um, it really just uh, it, it reeks of the desperation of, of April at this point. He's playing his last card. And, uh, which is funny to me because you would think that he would know Klingons and that they're going to take the Enterprise and then they're going to kill him. So I'm not really sure what he's thinking is really going to happen here. Right, right. I I don't know. I guess he feels that with the Enterprise, he's somehow more powerful than they are. But, um, 
but yeah, I, I think, like you said, he's playing his last card. Like that, this is he thinks this is going to help him achieve his own personal goals of saving the people on Phadius, and he really doesn't give a damn about Starfleet or the Prime right. Directive or or how it affects anyone else really. Now he 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 does talk about, and and they talked about this in the a little bit in the other issues of Countdown to Darkness as well that there's this impending war between the Klingons and the Federation and that there's nothing that anyone can really do to stop that war from happening. And I guess in his mind, maybe he does care about the Federation in some sense in that maybe he thinks that what he's doing is somehow for the greater good of the Federation. You know, so people, the people, it's like we talk about on Deep Space Nine with Goldicott, you know, all the things that Goldicott does. At least in his mind, he's justified those things as being for the greater good as he sees it. And I think here, April has sort of a similar view of things that he's doing something that he believes is for good, even if it's viewed as not being such for for others. Now, the Klingons do appear in the comic quite a bit. You had an interesting point. Also, when we were discussing this before the show, what if, you asked, what if the Klingons, when they take their helmets off, which they don't do in the comics, they all have their helmets on in the comics, what if they don't have ridges on their foreheads underneath those helmets? Well, I just wondered, you know, uh, we've never seen one with their helmet off, and what if they have made these helmets just to be more menacing looking? Mm-hmm. Maybe when they take the helmet off, you just get that TOS Klingon with maybe some gnarlier teeth or something like that. Kind of the classic Klingon look we think of. Um, but uh, just something to think about with never seeing the Klingon with their helmet off. So hopefully in this movie uh, coming up, the question will finally be answered. Do the Klingons have ridges or not? Are they ruffles yeah. or lays? <laughs> I, I think it will be answered. Another thought that just popped in my head, uh, we've talked before, I believe on here or on one of the other shows, about the possibility that they could be mining some cannon from Enterprise, you know, with the eugenics and Cold Station 12 right. in that series. and. I also wondered if maybe the Klingons had forehead ridges, but these Klingons are Klingons from that eugenics program. And that's maybe how Harrison is tied in with them somehow as well. And these Klingons don't have forehead ridges, but they wear the helmets to conceal that fact from people. Yeah. And and again, that's just another great theory that really does fit with you know all that we know of Star Trek continuity in the Prime Universe, and then just what they could do by opening all of those cans, uh, you know, and kind of mixing them all together and seeing what comes out here in New yeah. Trek, and that's the fun of this universe is we get to guess again in, in so many ways, and I really, yeah. it's one of the things I'm really enjoying, and again, really the the beauty of ongoing comics, then this, you know, the Countdown series and after darkness it just uh, keeps me excited about star trek while we're talking about the klingons we do get to see a klingon bird of prey in the comic and i would assume that this is the design of the bird of prey that we'll see in the movie because i i can't imagine with orsi and bad robot overseeing this that they would do anything else it's a very very different design than what we're accustomed to 
in Star Trek. It, it looks like the, the wings actually move. It kind of reminded me of how the nacelles on Voyager can go up and down. It looks like the wings on this bird of prey can rotate and reposition themselves. And I think you, you said you don't really like the design of the ship. And I do think that the design of the ship and the design of the helmets fit together in a way that it, it looks like there is a connection in terms of design aesthetic amongst the Klingons and how they would create their military gear, whether it be armor, helmets, or spacecraft. Yeah, I, I see that, uh, especially now you mentioned just the way the helmets look, the, the way they look in general. Um, I, I think, for me, it, it just strikes me as too different an aesthetic from what we know of Star Trek. Um, mm-hmm. It really is much more in the vein of the Narada, uh, that kind of um, space adventure look. Uh, this to yeah. me screams space adventure. Uh, it could come from Alien. Uh, it could come from any number of uh, sci-fi films. This doesn't say Star Trek to me. Um, you know, it, I don't love the new Enterprise, but at least I know it's the Enterprise. If right. if I didn't know there were Klingons on this, I wouldn't know this is a Klingon bird of prey. Um, you know, I get the feeling that if they could have done it. The Enterprise would have looked nothing like the Enterprise we're accustomed to either. I think that because the Enterprise is a character itself in Star Trek, that they yeah. felt that they couldn't really change the Enterprise. That if they were to completely change the Enterprise, fans would just reject the entire reboot. But but they feel, I think, that they can change other ships that are not the Enterprise. And so I think that's why here we're seeing this just complete and total redesign of Klingon aesthetics. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it has a main body. It has, you know, wings. Um, so there is something about it. You're Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it has something about it that looks vaguely, you know, Klingon maybe, but yeah, it's maybe. It, yeah, we we don't need to belabor the point. I just don't love it. Yeah, um, but I thought it was interesting to talk about in the comic because of uh, because of the artwork and because of the the kind of different path that they're going down. I think it it actually looks quite cool. It's just not what we are accustomed to as Klingon, right? Exactly. Um, now, so through the comic, they they have to regain control of the ship from April. That's pretty much kind of the first half of the story here. And um, I don't know, I don't really have a whole lot to talk about on that point because I'm more interested in how this actually sets up what's going to happen in the movie. But of course, Kirk wants to regain control of the ship and he finally gets control back. And even though he completely disagrees with what April is doing of hijacking the Enterprise, the events as they're unfolding, they do seem to have an impact on Kirk and they start to change the way Kirk thinks a bit leading us into the movie. Yeah, I think that that's one of those things that uh, is really going to help us with the film. Um, you know, Kirk gets reprimanded, he gets the Enterprise taken away, um, Pike lectures him, you know, asking, do you realize how much of a pain in the ass you are? Kirk says, yes. 
Um, and, and so I think this is where that kind of rebel of Kirk really starts to come out uh, in a way that we hadn't seen so far because he's been very by the book in in this series and even in ongoing. And he has a great conversation with Spock about, you know, what is Starfleet doing out here if not to prevent the kind of tragedy, that kind of tragedy, whenever we can. And um, Spock says, but the prime directive. And Kirk says, do me a favor. Don't bring it up for a while. Uh, and, and you can tell that uh, he's sufficiently dissatisfied with Starfleet at this moment. And um, then with the dressing down that he gets from Pike at the end, um, you can definitely see that he is not really happy with a lot of what's happening in Starfleet right now. At least that's the feeling I get. And uh, I think, you know, they're being sent off onto their next mission after this. They're going to the planet that we see at the very beginning of all the trailers. Um, and uh, you can tell that Kirk is probably going to handle things quite a bit differently than he did at the beginning of Countdown to Darkness. Yeah, I think we're seeing that evolution towards a Kirk that we're more familiar with. If you think back to the end of, near the end of Star Trek Generations, when Prime Kirk, if we have to call him that here, tells Picard, you know, don't don't ever let them promote you. Don't ever let them take you off the bridge of that ship because while you're there, you can make a difference. And I think that's one thing about the Kirk that we have known over all the years is that he's a man who wants to make a difference. And when he comes across something like what was happening here on this world, on Vadius, it affects him. And, and he, he does feel for other people. And and although he's bound by the rules of Starfleet, inside, you know, he really wants to help people. He wants to make a difference. He, he doesn't always do it the right way. He does have a habit in the original series of going to worlds and pointing out what's wrong, tearing it down, and then leaving them on their own to figure it out, which I think a lot of that is 60 storytelling. I mean, that's the way it played out. But I think we're seeing here that turn in the Abrams first Kirk from the guy who just went into Starfleet after being challenged by Pike, uh, went through the academy as anyone who's right out of school would be. He's kind of by the book up to this point. He's uh, getting by on what he's been taught. Now he's starting to experience the real world and his views are changing. And that's leading us into the movie. And I think that that's why I think this movie is going to be a lot more interesting than the last one. Well, I think I've said this before, but I really think that this is the movie um, that's the Empire Strikes Back, probably, of this trilogy. Um, you know, Star Wars was a lot of fun, um, and then you got Empire Strikes Back, and it took all of those characters, put them in the worst situation possible, and you didn't know how they were going to get out of it. Um, obviously, um, the writers have already told us that, you know, there is a happy ending to this story, um, for our characters, but uh, they're going to go through hell to get there. And they've said, too, that Kirk really has to earn the chair in this movie. And so I think uh, that's one of the things that I, is going to make this a great film. I, I think Star Trek fans are really going to respond to it. I know that this comic has left me all the more excited for the film. So I just can't wait. I got my tickets and I'm ready to go. That it definitely has done. Uh, so... In wrapping up, I've been very impressed with Countdown to Darkness. 
I think they have, of course, done a fabulous job with the artwork. Uh, the pacing, the flow of the story has been excellent, and the writing has been very good. It's raised a lot of big issues that uh, we would expect from Star Trek, and it has done a brilliant job of setting up the movie. Well, tonight we have a really special guest. We've got Greg Cox with us, a prolific Star Trek author, as well as prolific writer in general. Uh, Greg has written so many books in tie-in fiction that he himself has lost count of what series he's written for. Uh, And we're very excited to have him tonight with us to talk about The Weight of Worlds, as well as some um, just Star Trek things and, and things that he's been working on. Please welcome Greg Cox. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, great to have you here, Greg. Excellent. Well, Greg, it's it's uh, really glad to have you on. Um, you know, you have written, like I said, a lot of Star Trek books as well as other books. And um, one of the things I'm always interested in, and what was your first experience with Star Trek? And really, what made you a fan of the series in the end and has kept uh, that fandom fueled over uh, so many years? Well, like I said, I honestly cannot remember a time when I wasn't a Star Trek fan. I, I have dim memories of watching the original so, show during its original run on NBC back in the 60s. It was a very big deal if my dad would let me stay up past my bedtime to, you know, watch Star Trek. So, you know, I remember the Salt Vampire and the Doomsday Machine and all that. When I was a kid. <laughs> so I, I, I grew up on Star Trek and then in college, hooked up with my local college science fiction you know, club where we watched Star Trek religiously in reruns. I mean, the original series, I, I you know, was running in reruns and syndication throughout my entire childhood. You came home from dinner, from school, you fixed a TV dinner and you watched Wild Wild West and you watched Star Trek and you, you know, could probably identify the episode within five seconds. In fact, I remember when we were in college, mm-hmm. we would play Name That Star Trek episode. We'd just turn on, and this was a game measured in nanoseconds. <laughs> Star Data. <laughs> the way to Eden. The way to Eden. The way to Eden. You know. Um, so I, I, I grew up on Star Trek. I saw every single one of the movies on opening night. You know, often with groups of twenty or more fan friends. So, indeed, I like to joke. I'm a, I'm second generation Trek writer because two of my creative writing teachers were Vonda McIntyre, who was a famous Star oh, Trek yeah. author. Mm. And Norman yes. Spinrad, who wrote the Doomsday Machine. So, oh, really? They, wow. I, oh, wow. Yeah. They were they were two of my creative writing instructors. So, I, I'm a second generation Star Trek writer. I know, and just you know, Star Trek is amazing. It's it, it's one of the few science fiction series out there that's actually set in a future that works, as opposed to a post-apocalyptic doomsday nightmare totalitarian 1984. Right. You know, the apes have not taken over. The Terminators have not taken over. Mankind has not been reduced to living in the rubble, so, you know. And it's also a very broad right. format, too. Even if you look at the original series, it's like Doctor Who, you can encompass all different kinds of storytelling. You've got courtroom dramas, you've got morality plays, you've got war stories, submarine dramas, even the occasional comedy and farce. It's a very wide, big tent, you know. You know, with everything right. from the Trouble of Tribbles to... Um, balance of terror, which you know gives me a lot of room to play with when I'm reading the novels. Right. Well, and you've written for each of the different series uh, except for Enterprise. Um, do you have a, a favorite series? Is TOS your favorite, or did you know TNG or Deep Space Nine? One of those kind of usurp that after a while. 
No, I've enjoyed. I enjoyed. I've enjoyed writing all of them, and it's fun to do different things. But no, I admit I grew up on TOS. At at heart, you know, TOS is near and dear to my heart. I've probably written more TOS than anything else. Although honestly, I think my TNG books are probably the best best selling. Okay, <laughs> probably because of the time period when you were writing them as well. I think you know, cause TNG was really the series at that point in time. No, I think I wrote a trilogy, The Q Continuum, which I think yes. are still the best-selling Star Trek books I've ever written. I, I'm still getting royalties on those books. Yeah, I remember reading it when it came out. Wow, that's always a good thing, too. You know something's popular when you're still getting royalties on it. <laughs> I, right. I once had the thrill of wandering into a bookstore in, in, in Rome, Italy, and seeing the Italian editions of The Q Continuum on sale, you know, in Rome, you know, and, I think I freaked out a little bit and started yelling at my girlfriend, over here, over here, you know, <laughs> in, you know in Italian. You yeah, know. that would be pretty cool. Um, well, what led you um, to writing? You, you talked about, you know, being taught by some great Star Trek writers than yourself. Um, is that what you always wanted to do um, and just pursued that? Or did you fall into it by a happy accident, some felicity? Uh, how did you get into that? Now, in retrospect, it seems like I was always meant to write this stuff because I remember even, you know, in elementary school, you know, scribbling my own little stories in my notebooks and writing stories about my favorite superheroes and comic book characters and things. You know, what we, what we would call fanfic now, although I didn't know that term back then. But honestly, I, I got my degree in chemistry. Uh, I went to college. It wasn't until I got stuck in, discovered professional sort of, you know, the whole science fiction community fandom right. conventions and all that in college and started going to conventions and meeting people who are actually doing this for a living that it actually sort of registered on me that, oh, real people actually do this. You know, people who live in Seattle, um, you know, in my same town actually do this for a living and how does this work? And that's where I kind of got the idea. I started, I started small, writing short stories. I sold handfuls of short stories, things like Amazing Stories, Mike Shane Mystery Magazine. And eventually worked up the nerve to move to New York City and try to make, make you know, a career out of it. I had a, another writing teacher, David Hartwell, who was actually one of the original editors on Pocketbook Star Trek Line, who convinced me basically, Greg, if you're really serious about this, you need to move to New York City and from Seattle and you know, dive all the way in, and I did. And I actually ended up working on the other side of the desk for years. I got a job working as a science fiction editor at Tor Books. And okay. For years, I worked my nine to five job. I worked editing other people's books, uh, and gradually sigged as a, while writing on the side. I gradually sigged from being a full time science fiction editor who dabbled in writing tie in novels on the side, to being you know to writing tie in novels full time. While in fact, I still dabble. I'm still a consultant for Tor Books and still edit some books for them. Wow, that's really cool. So. You started with the editing and then got into writing. How did you get into writing for so many of the different tie-in universes? I mean, from, you know, DC Comics to all these different... Um, Part of it... How whole, did that come about? The whole New York science fiction community published, is a reasonably small and close-knit group. We all know each other. We all had lunch together. Um, we all hire each other, you know. <laughs> um, so he's... You, know, you get to know people, and uh, the first tie-in I did was some Batman stories. I wrote for mm -hmm. DC around back, as I say, when Michelle Pfeiffer was Catwoman. 
Okay. A, a friend of mine alerted me that DC was looking for a lot of Catwoman stories and Penguin stories to tie in with Batman Returns and got us a meeting with somebody at DC. I wrote some stuff. And then John Ordover uh, was also another assistant editor at Tor Books, whom I shared mm -hmm. a cubicle with for years. John eventually became the head Star Trek editor at Pocket Books, called me up one day, Greg, they've got this new series they're launching, Deep Space Nine. I need a whole pile of Deep Space Nine books fast. Um, basically, there was an opening because, you know, they suddenly needed a whole pile of authors to write Deep Space Nine novels as fast as humanly possible. Uh, Greg, you want to write Deep Space Nine? I, I liked your Batman stories. I know you're a Star Trek fan because we, we knew each other. You want quick, send me an outline for a Deep Space Nine book. We need Deep Space Nine books. And, you know, I, I jumped on that opportunity and the rest is history. So uh, I'm curious, you were writing Deep Space Nine at a time before Deep Space Nine became the the war series, the very heavily serialized um, kind of very, very complex story that it became. You were writing in the earlier seasons. How did you approach writing those characters based on your past Star Trek experience when there wasn't really that much DS9 on the screen at that point in time? Honestly, I started working on my DS9 book before the show aired. Right. Oh, wow. Uh, um, it eventually, no, um, they sent me the script for the first episode. They sent me a Bible, and I wrote the outline on that. And I think I wrote the book during the first season of Deep Space Nine. So it was all very new, and we were sort of, you know, just sort of, you know, figuring it out then. I, I was reading every article in Starlog, you know, this is before the internet. So I was reading every bit of publicity I could find in Starlog magazine, remember that? About, yep. you know, looking at photos. So if you read my novel, everybody is very much in the mode they were in the first four or five episodes. Mm -hmm. I, I've gotten complaints from people that Kira is too mean to Bashir in my book. But honestly, if you remember, you know... <laughs> that's how she and, was in the beginning. He and Bashir right. don't, don't hit it off in the, in the pilot episode, and that's pretty much all I had to go on. Right. So I, I kind of picked up on that and ran with it. Some would say I ran it into the ground. But, you know, so I was very early days just trying to learn the characters. Yeah. And I admit, I, didn't, I did not have a handle on Dax. I, I, I feel very strongly that Dax did not get a, you know, real discernible personality until mm -hmm. season two. So right. I, I basically avoided writing Dax as much as possible, you know. Uh, O'Brien I understood because he was from Next Generation, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. the Ferengis I understood, so I should probably mention that book was actually a collaboration with John Bedencourt. We actually wrote the book together. And we kind okay. of divvied the characters up. He got Kira and Dax and Bashir. I got O'Brien and Nog and, you know, uh, Odo and such. The, the way we actually divided up the plot so we could work independently of each other was he got the away team and all the scenes with the away team and I got all the scenes in the station. Oh, okay. And then we got together one snowy afternoon wrote the ending together when the plots converged. Huh, very interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so you've written, like I said, you've gotten a chance to explore uh, characters like Q um, and Khan, as well as uh, writing for every series in Star Trek except for Enterprise. Uh, what have been some of your favorite characters and favorite series to end up getting to write for? Um, well, you know, 
I, I also have a real weakness for Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln, who keep popping up in my books and who I really enjoyed. Um, indeed, I think the very, very first outline I ever submitted to Pocket Books was for a Return of Gary Seven book, which ended up not happening. Actually, I ended up doing Deep Space Nine and Voyager, mm-hmm. and but I eventually got my I got Gary Seven and Roberta. So I, I, I enjoy writing them. They, I was always intrigued by that episode from the '60s, Assignment Earth. Mm-hmm. which hinted there were further adventures for them. So I like to think that my books come from an alternate universe where Assignment Earth, the TV series, ran for five seasons, you know. Excellent. <laughs> right, the pilot, it got picked up, it got turned into a series. Yes, so I, I, I had fun writing Gary Seven and Roberta. So to my mind, they're kind of like the, the um, Star Trek universe of the, of, of the Avengers or something. There's kind of that whole sort of 60s spy vibe, vibe to them. I, you know, the man, you know. Our man Flint, the Avengers, right. by which I mean Steve and Emma, not Tony and Bruce. You know, so I enjoy that writing them. That's a lot of. And Con, like I said, Con was a huge part of my life for years. I, I did not, we, I did not set out to write three books about Con, but I did. You know, and at this point, I have seen Wrath of Con and Space Seed more times than I want to think about. Okay. <laughs> What was that like? Um, really getting to dive into that character, especially with. You know, just his overwhelming popularity. And, and really, if you were to ask, you know, nine out of ten Star Trek fans, that's probably their favorite film. Oh, um, no, that was great. Like I said, if, if you have to watch a Star Trek movie over and over and over again, The, the Wrath of Khan is the one to do. Um, I, I should be give credit where it's due and point out there was my editor, John Ordover, who actually suggested to me that I do some books about Khan. I had made a throwaway reference to Khan in one of my other books. And he was like, well, Greg, yeah, you, you want to do books about Khan? Oh, well, okay. You know, um, I hadn't thought of it, but twist my arm, why don't you? You know. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Uh, so, yeah. So, so, you know, Khan is a fascinating character, very charismatic. And then I got to, you know, dive in and do the eugenics wars, you know, or at least my take on the eugenics wars. Yeah, that's really cool. cool. Yeah. I should mention, I actually now have my own little temple of Khan here in my office. You can't see it, but the Khan, I've got the Khan action figures, Excellent. the TV guide cover, the Hallmark Christmas ornament. You know, I have my little Khan collection now. Do you have a little SETI eel in an aquarium that you can play with? I even have a pewter version, version of the Botany Bay. Oh. oh, wow. Nice. And an old copy of Moby Dick on the shelf, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he tasks me, you know. well the way to the world is is your newest book in the tos era and um for that story just what was the genesis for that story well honestly one of my real goals for that book was to actually do more with the secondary characters i actually felt that you know i had actually neglected sulu and yura to a degree in, in the same way that the show occasionally did i had fallen into the trap of just having Sulu go warp factor three, Captain I Icer, and your uh, opening hailing frequencies. So, my, my real goal, goal going into that was, well, of course, giving Kirk and Spock plenty to do. It was okay. This was going to be the book where I was going to have fun with Sulu and Yura, mm-hmm. because you're always looking for something you haven't done yet. And this right. Part, okay, most of my TOS books are very heavily Kirk centric, which, not surprisingly, he's the star of the show. But okay, this, I, in my head, it was like, okay, find something for Kirk and Spock to do but get them off the ship so that Sulu and Yura, you know, can shine and, you know, 
so yeah, actually in the plot, just not to give too much away, Kirk and Spock are stuck in another dimension for most of the book. Sulu is trapped behind enemy lines on his own, getting to do some hero stuff. And Jura ends up taking command of the Enterprise, which had, you know, was well way overdue, I thought. Okay. Yeah, especially since, you know, her main role, at least what you see on the show, is answering the phone, which is, you know, kind of sad. Well, there's an episode, Cat's Paw, where logically she should have been in command. But because it was the 1960s and I guess you couldn't have a black woman in command, they, they bring in, you know, right. the previously unmentioned Lieutenant DeSalle to sit in the captain's chair. Right, exactly. I was like, damn it, you know, I, I mentioned explicitly in the new book, The Weight of Worlds, that Lieutenant DeSalle has been transferred over to the Reliant or whatever, so yeah, I... clear the way to... <laughs> Let's get rid of him. I actually... I, I, this, this was the makeup for Cat's Paw. Um, um, look, okay. That, well, and I... Ever since Cat's Paw, Greg has been plotting his revenge on Lieutenant DeSalle. Finally! <laughs> <laughs> You watch the episodes, you absorb the episodes, but you're always kind of looking for what didn't they do. Because yeah, right. at this point, there's been set, like, you know, something like 700 Star Trek novels. And I've written something like 16 of them. So you're always, well, you're looking for, you know, what hasn't been done, what haven't we been seen, what could I do a slightly different twist on something, you know. Hey, Yura, you know, we've never seen her in command, let's do the Yura in command book. And like I said, you know, thankfully, Pocket Books approved the idea. So. Yeah, well, and it, that was one of my main goals going into that book. It makes complete sense with the Uhura that we see in JJ's universe. That you know, uh, you know, I never thought that Uhura, even you know, watching the show, didn't do other things. You know, I just feel like they just didn't show you what she did, and so it was really great in this book to finally get her uh, take charge. I mean, when she slams that slate over his head. Uh, I was, I was, I wanted to cheer, but I was, I was reading at my desk at work on my break, and so I didn't want to be so loud. Michelle Nichols should get credit for do, do, doing a lot with very little. I mean, she really did give you a nice sense of her personality, even with often, you know, not as much screen time as you might, you know, like. And you know, I, I, I just recently finished a doing a rewatch of the entire three seasons mm-hmm. of the original series. And yeah, you're, you know, when she gets a chance, you know, Michelle Nichols is a lot of fun and has a lot of personality. Yeah, you know. she really does. It's a shame that she quite often gets just stuck opening Haley frequencies. With uh, writing, you know, you talked about the fact that, you know, Star Trek books, there are hundreds and hundreds of them these days. And, uh, you know, finding something new to do with the characters can be difficult for you, you know, what is that like? I mean, you're writing these characters that we all know so well. How do you find something new to say about them, especially in the five-year mission time span when, you know, so many books, again, have been written? Well, you, you want to, to some degree, hit the notes that people expect, of course, and have, you know, the characters sound like themselves, but at the same time, try to find some gimmick or some way into it or, you know, what haven't I done with, you know, Spock? Right. Or, or sometimes, like, often, like I said, in my case, I've simply been sort of picking up on episodes and trying to flesh them out. Like, oh, let's flesh out Khan and his backstory. Let's bring back Gary Seven and Roberta. I, I've been accused of, you know, practicing continuity porn, but quite often I like to rate old episodes and 
I brought back the right. Hortas, my Deep Space Nine right. book, you know. And you've got all these wonderful universes and characters whom we saw once in the old show, you know. So bring them back, and then you can sort of tie into their history and try to, you know, what would happen if, you know, Kirk ran into Gary Seven again? What would happen if, you know, Yura had to take charge of the ship? Or um, the con books, like I said, really, you know, have a framing sequence with Kirk and Spock, but most of them are back in the 1980s and 1990s. Yeah. So I got doing something very different there. Yeah, you know, a lot of those books felt, you know, Writing them felt like I was writing X Files novels, you know, because <laughs> it was all conspiracy and intrigue and mm-hmm. genetic engineering back in the eighties and the nineties. Right. You know, um, this book is is got some really big themes to it, um, and there are quite a few actually. Uh, and one of them, and I, I felt like I guess one of the biggest questions that you asked was just this question of, you know, truth. What is it? Is there more than one? If there if there is, how do we classify that? All these questions, and it's one of the biggest questions of our time uh, of this idea of truth. You know, is it universal or is it just cultural? And then, can you call it truth? Because there's all these questions that revolve around that, and this is one of the things they have to kind of deal with in this book. Tell me a little bit about kind of working in some of these themes and having the the characters wrestle with them. Well, like the, the basic theme of the book was, which I tried to keep finding ways to work in, was basically to pit, you know, good old-fashioned Star Trek multiculturalism against sort of, you know, uh, absolutism, purism, religious fundamentalism, you know. Uh, you know, Star Trek has always been very much about infinite diversity and infinite, you know, uh, combinations and meeting different races and not assuming the humanity has the answers to everything. And, you know, as opposed to, and, you know, the opposite of that would be, you know, my villains who are basically evil religious fundamentalists from another dimension, you know. It, it's not a coincidence the first scene has them attacking, you know, a college campus, which was sort of, you know, rather than just, you know, a science colony or a random city or a space station. No, that, that's sort of a, you know, a college campus is nice sort of openness and different ideas and the free exchange of ideas and, you know, all those good old-fashioned liberal notions. So that would, of course, be, you know, ground zero target one for my evil crusaders, you know. And that was a way of getting the theme right in there from the mm-hmm. very beginning, you know. Uh, and then I have, very, in, even in the opening scene, I've got, without giving too much away, I've got Eurora and spot talking about human traditions versus Vulcan traditions mm-hmm. and customs and accommodating each other's different ways. The whole theme of it basically, you know, you know, multiculturalism good, absolutism and our way is the only way, you know, it's bad. Uh, in fact, Kirk paraphrases, I believe, an old George Bernard Shaw quote early in the book to the effect that a barbarian is someone who thinks that the customs of his own people are, you know, the laws of nature. But, which was, again, you know, I wasn't terribly subtle about any of my themes, right. I don't think, but I, you know, I tried to, you know, make sure that there wasn't just action-adventure and, you know, ray guns, you know, trying to strike a balance between being fun and entertaining and also trying to get, you know, right. some, some, some themes in there. Right, which is what the original series did very well, I think. You don't want to get too preachy either and just have the characters standing around making speeches yeah. at each other. So now, I do think that you balance it well, though, with your uh, with some of the Ayalotl people in that, you know, 
for them, you see that their race was not always this crusade. Um, you know, they used to have a very peaceful uh, existence. They had one where arts and science and all these things reigned along with their faith, and it worked all very well together until somebody came in and, and took it over and said, no, the end is coming, and, and so we've got to convert everyone to our way or the highway. And that was because of a, sort of a huge cultural challenge they had to kind of shook their worldview. It was right. kind of like discovering that the Earth was not at the center of the solar system. They discovered their dimension was not the only dimension, and that was just a huge trauma to their society. Right. Since they lived in a dimension where, in fact, they were the only intelligent race. And so it, I figured a big cultural jolt to the system that was producing a bad counter-backlash. I, I, I tried not to make them just two-dimensional, like you said, evil religious fundamentalists, but... No, there was a reason why they had this weird cultural backlash, you know, and they weren't always that way. And even as it got into at one point, even in their society, if you go down to lower depths, it turns out that it's not everybody has not completely gone over to the true faith. You, there are, in fact, a sleazy underbelly where presumably, you know, houses of ill repute are still going on because no culture right. can be 100% just one cultural note, you know. Right striking the same note there's going to be be diversity and some people are going to be a little bit more into it than others yeah and that's i mean i i like that you balance that i think it makes it more interesting for your you know anytime your villain is more dimensional than just the straight up bad guy um and you know i'm for me i felt like too this is something that can happen to any belief system you can take it to the nth degree um, and you start persecuting other people just because they don't believe like you. And any belief system that starts to do that and doesn't come back is in trouble. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely, I, I like that, that, uh, you know, again, this is what TOS does really well. Um, every, every time you, I watch the, through the series, I notice that Kirk tends to um, battle these like false gods on these planets but they're gods that don't really deserve these people's worship because in the end they're just like supercomputers or Return of the archons, the apple, etc. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and so you know, uh, Kirk's not against people having faith, but you know, having faith in a just a really smart computer, you know, that doesn't really hold a lot of weight when you can just unplug it. You talk it to death. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I really liked, too, is that you did do this um, comparison between the multicultural federation and then just the kind of the monoculture and seeing those two and how they work and that in some ways they've built a lot of really interesting things, especially scientifically, in a completely different way. And Spock is very uh, surprised that they've gotten as far as they have because they don't have any diversity and uh, so scientifically, that, that puzzles him because he's so used to it being, you know, dissension and that kind of different of thought. Talk to me a little bit more about that and what you were thinking in that part and um, just putting that together. Well, a lot of that was just about pushing Spock out of his comfort zone and just figuring how to, you know. Mm. Generally, I, I tend to start on a certain level with, um, the plot and the characters. When I, when I sit down on the keyboard, I'm usually not thinking, that, hmm, this morning, what point am I going to make about multiculturalism or global, you know. I, I think you, kind of, you, you don't want to let the message start taking priority over the story. 
you want to think about how the characters react. And I was thinking about how being getting into Spock's head, he would be very uncomfortable having to run around in this very fundamentalist society. So those scenes kind of started with me just sort of thinking about what Spock's take on the civilization would be. And once I started thinking about Spock, those questions came to me, and I felt I had to come up with an answer. But you, you tend to sort of like start with the characters and figure, put them into I kind of think that if you take interesting characters and stick them into an interesting situation, to a certain degree, the themes and morals will just sort of arise organically by themselves if you just start putting char interesting characters in conflict with each other rather than, hi, I'm going to write a book about global warming, I'm going to write a book about racism, you know. Um, right. This one a little bit more just because, honestly, I actually worked out the plot and most of the plot beats before I even figured out what the motives of the villains were. And then I realized, well, my villains need a motive, and I sort of built the culture. But before that, I kind of started with the idea that Kirk and Spock are doing one thing, Sulu's doing the other thing, and Yura's doing the other thing. And, oh, my villains actually need some sort of motive. They can't just be conquering our, the Federation for no damn reason because they're bad guys. Right. But that was actually kind of late in the process. And then the theme, as I started trying to think of something that would contrast with Kirk and Spock and what, you know, what, what was a logical antagonist to the Federation and their kind of viewpoint, well, then the Crusaders just kind of developed that way. And then I started thinking, what would Spock's reaction to the society be? How would it be different from Kirk's reaction? And let's just sort of, you know, um, go from there. You know, I, I'm sort of thinking this out sometimes through the characters. You know, the questions Spock is asking about how the society works are the questions I'm asking myself as I'm slapping my head and going, oh, Jesus Christ, how does the society work? Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I think is so interesting just watching, you know, you've known these characters for so long, you can become them and in, in when you're writing and, and how they would think because you've spent so much time with them. And so it, it sounds like for you, it, it's it's not that difficult to jump from, okay, Spock would, would do this, uh, Kirk would do this, you know, Sulu would approach it this way, um, you know, Chekhov would make this joke here. <laughs> Well, like I said, it depends. Like I said, I had a I had a trouble I, getting a handle on Dax when I wrote my Deep Space Nine book. I didn't have not. A, she was hard to write, but mm -hmm. you know, the more vivid the characters are, the easier. Right. And at the risk of patting myself on the back, I think if there's one talent I do have, and I'm, I'm pretty good at being a literary mimic, or at least picking up the tone of a TV series of characters and their voices. Right. Yeah, I think. Yeah, so. I, I I am a good literary impressionist. You know, I can make Q sound like Q. I can make Kirk sound like Kirk, you know, nope. Because I, I, my experience, nothing knocks people out of tie-ins faster than thinking, well, Riker wouldn't say that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Kira wouldn't say that, you know. So, mm -hmm. you wanna... And when you've got characters that you've grown up your entire life, like Spock and Kirk, yeah, that comes very, very natural. Right, yeah. What I like about the best novels is that as you read them, you can hear those characters in their voices in your head as you're reading, and it feels... Like, the, this is exactly the character. And then, you know, you have written the perfect novel in that way. Well, I try to inundate my two, too. There's, there's, a, there's a bit of immersion. When I'm writing a Star Trek novel, I tend to watch Star Trek in the evening. I tend to listen to Star Trek soundtracks while I'm writing, you know. And, and it's the same thing if I'm writing a Leverage novel. Well, then I'll eat, breathe, and sleep Leverage for three months, you know. Uh, probably drives my girlfriend crazy. You know, oh, do we have to watch Leverage again tonight? You know, um, <laughs> I, I do try to sort of immerse myself in that mindset. If I'm writing Batman, I've got the Batman soundtrack albums blaring, you know, I'm reading comic books, you know, I'm 
sort of immersing myself in the world of Batman. I, I completely understand now why when we had uh, Tony Daniel on um, that uh, he called you the greatest tie-in novelist ever. And yeah, so now I know why. I, I, well, there, there's many others. Good, like I said, it's a small community, but I know them all, and there are many good, you know, tie-in authors. And I, you know, there's Chris Bennett, there's Keith DeCandido, there's Dave Mack, there's, you know, James Swallow, you know. Mm-hmm. And Tony yeah. is an old friend of mine. I'm glad you, you talked to Tony. Yes, we did. We just uh, talked to him a couple week or a few weeks ago about his newest book. It was a lot of fun. I actually edited Tony's first two novels, a tour, like over a decade ago. So we we go way back. Yeah, I think you mentioned that actually. Yeah, his first original novels. Well, some one of the things uh, that I noticed when I was looking you up is that. Um, like we've said, you've done a lot of work in the different uh, tie-in novel areas, and, and you've gotten to do some novelizations of films. You've done uh, The Dark Knight Rises, which came out last year. This year, you're doing Man of Steel. Uh, what is it like to turn a movie or, you know, say a large comic book series like uh, something like um, Infinity Crisis or Final Crisis into a full-fledged novel? Well, it, it's... With the, the movie novelizations, the challenge is you're basically writing a 300-page description of a movie you haven't seen. Um, I am usually working from an early version of the script, and whatever visual reference work I can either scrounge up or that the studio can provide me with. That's the challenge because you, you, I don't, you, know, you always, you know, because scripts tend to be just dialogue and action. They tend not not right. to describe things in detail because that's not the screenwriter's job. That's the costume designer's job. You know, the script will say something like, you know, she walks into a room, she's a knockout, all heads turn, but doesn't tell you actually what she looks like or what her dress she's wearing is, you know. That's the stuff you have to try to pry out of the studio. On the other hand, a lot of the heavy lifting has already been done by the screenwriters in terms of, you know, how the plot gets from point A to B, the dialogue, the plot, so that, you know, in a pinch you can write a novelization fairly quickly because you're not pulling your hair out trying to figure out the plot. So, and it's of course always very, there's always a thrill. There's the fan, you know, I am enough of a fan that, oh boy, it is just exciting being in on the ground floor and being even peripherally connected, even if one step removed from a major motion picture. And, you know, right. I mean, for Man of Steel, I got to fly out to Hollywood. I got to see some of the props and the sets. It was cool. It was fun. You wow. know, I'm not lying. You know, uh, and talk to people. Well, I'm a little jealous. Superman's my uh, favorite superhero, and so <laughs> I'm very excited to to see that. I that was exciting. Superman and I were like ships that passed in the night for a long time. I, I, there was talk of me doing a Lois and Clark book, but it didn't happen. I chased after Smallville for a while, that didn't happen. But Superman and I finally have connected. You know, uh, that was very exciting. So, yeah. do you find it's difficult to get? A lot of times surrounding movies, even up to the last minute, there's so much secrecy surrounding that. Do you find it's difficult at times to get all the information that you need from the studio in order to write the novelization effectively? Well, I have to sign my life away. I mean, I sign ironclad non-disclosure agreements. And at this point, I like to think that after eight or nine novelizations, they trust me. And I, I maintain radio silence. On The Dark Knight Rises, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't even tell friends and family I was working on that book until Amazon spilled the beans. I, I think they thought I was working <laughs> on a Star Trek novel. I mean, just on, I, well, I didn't want to bring up the subject because then people go, oh, well, you know, can you? no, I can't tell you. Radio silence. My girlfriend and my agent knew I was writing that book. Nobody else. I didn't even tell my folks until 
like I said, it showed up on Amazon. You know, um, I, I you, you keep a tight lip. Fortunately, the studios are taking trust you. They you know, sometimes but they are getting more secretive. The security surrounding the Dark Knight was intense. You know, all files had to be encrypted. Um, you know, I wasn't allowed to actually have a physical copy of the script. I had to go, I had to fly physically out to Burbank, where they basically locked me in a room for three days with the script to take as many notes as I could in three days. Oh, you know, right. was, um, was the script tied to a table? <laughs> no, but there was a nice young woman who would bring it to me in the morning, and before I, when I went on lunch, I gave it back to her, you know. Wow. You know, yeah. and, you know, et cetera. You hear those you know. stories about, about Apple with, like iPad before it came out and how the, the developers would come and see it. And it was like actually attached to a table physically or something. So there was like I have never no seen way that. No, I actually had to go to the Warner Bros. slot. Okay. And, and read the script on the premises. I was not allowed to take it with me or take it back to my hotel room. Or mm-hmm. Like I said, if I went in for lunch, I gave it back to the nice young woman who was in charge of, you know, putting it back in the Admantium vault or whatever, you know, when I was done with it. So, um, <laughs> And like I said, the security for Man of Steel was similar. And that's why, yeah, like I said, even going back, my, my first novelization was Daredevil. And back then, they actually did trust me with the script because that was before the internet. Um, but, you know, again, tight security, sign non-disclosure agreements, don't talk to anybody, don't show anybody, you know. Of all of uh, your other tie-in work, comic uh, book work, uh, with the different characters for comic books, is there a, a favorite that you have that you just really enjoyed doing? Well, like I said, I, I, I really like the variety. One of the nice things about doing tie-ins and about doing it for so many different franchises is that I, you know, I mean, I love Star Trek, but if I wrote nothing but Star Trek for 20 years, I would go insane, you know. I like right. doing Warehouse 13. I like doing Alias. Um, I, I've, it pushes me out of my comfort zone. I get to try different things. I've done CSI. I've done Alias. You know, I've done spy thrillers, murder mysteries, science fiction, horror, superheroes. I even did a historical romance once. Um, I just wrote a Leverage novel, which was my first sort of funny crime caper book, which I think you know sort of forces me to use different muscles and develop different muscles and. I enjoy them all to various degrees. Recently, I really enjoyed doing Warehouse 13. That was a lot of fun because I could get silly. Mm-hmm. And I have my silly side. You know, um, you can't be silly when writing Underworld. Because the right. Underworld is serious. Um, doing some of the big DC comic novelizations was fun, too. I got to use pretty much every single character in the DC universe. Right. Uh, doing 52 or Infinite Crisis. Oh, I'm doing The Spectre. I'm doing Dead Man. I'm doing Lagoon Boy for... The Teen Titans and the Legions of Superheroes, you know, whatever itches I had to write DC Comics characters, I got to pretty much do every, you know, I did Anthro, you know, and <laughs> but so that that was a lot of fun. I, I, 52 in particular was fun because I was all over the place. I got to do Batwoman and Renee Montoya, and all, all these fun characters that I hadn't had a chance to do before. Mm, that's really awesome. That's really awesome. Um. For you as an author, uh, what are the things that you enjoy reading when you have time, uh, when you're not busy writing or kind of immersing yourself into something like a comic book world or a TV show like Leverage? Well, that's the thing. I, I don't. I need to work more time into my schedule for just free reading because I don't do as much of it as I like. Because besides, besides the writing work, I'm also doing editing for tour. So most of what I read is books I'm editing for tour, writing cover copy for tour, 
or something. But no, um, I like reading tie-ins sometimes. I just last week read a Star Trek novel, Cast No Shadow, by James Swallow. But I also like to read murder mysteries. I like horror. Uh, I like Tim authors like Tim Powers, Graham Joyce. Um, I'm a big Richard Matheson fan, and that's a very right. self-serving comment because I've been Richard Matheson's editor for 20 years <laughs> at Tor, but I, I enjoy reading Richard's stuff and was a big fan of his before I became his editor, you know. Uh, but, you know, eclectic stuff. Um, I wrote a novel about Houdini a few years ago, which gave me an excuse to read six biographies of Houdini, which was a lot of fun, but, you know. I'll read tie-ins. At, at the moment, I'm reading the other Leverage novels just to see what my friends are doing. There's there's three novelist, Leverage novels in the works. Um, I read the first two just to see how other people handle the same characters. Since uh, I, mine was the third one out, so I read the, the first one was by Matt Forbeck, and the second one was by Keith DeCandido. I read those. So you like to see what other people are doing. Definitely. And read, when, I, when, I, when I get a chance, I read comic books. I head into my local comic book store and pick up my monthly supply, you know. I'm enjoying so, the Fearless Defenders right now from Marvel. Excellent. I'm enjoying Batwoman. I, I admit I still have a sentimental attachment to Batwoman ever since writing 52, which was you know, her origin, mm -hmm. you know. Right. So uh, your monthly comic supply, uh, what are the ones that you get pulled? Oh, it, uh, I try to sample a little bit from Marvel and DC, uh, I, uh, there's so many of them, I, I can't keep up with them anymore because there's just so many, but I, I'm reading one of the Avengers titles, one of the X-Men titles, just so to keep a sense of what's going on mm -hmm. in the Marvel Universe. Over at DC, I'm reading uh, Phantom Stranger because I have a weakness for the spooky end of the DC Universe, the Spectre and Dead Man and all that. Um, I'm reading uh, Batwoman because, like I said, you know, you, you write 80,000 words about a character, you get attached to them. Okay, uh, and, and sampling things, you know. Yeah. And I try to jump on some of the big event stuff just so I know what's happening. And keep, 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 you know, my feet in the water. So that if and when I get a phone call saying, Greg, we want you to do a Fantastic Four book, I kind of know what's going on in Fantastic Four these days, which has been known to happen, so. Yeah, and on the Star Trek front, have you been reading the new... Star Trek ongoing series that picked up after the first J.J. Abrams movie and is continuing on? I haven't caught all of them. I'm reading Countdown to Darkness, you know, which is the sort of alleged whatever prequel to the new movie just to, uh -huh. out of curiosity, and I'm enjoying that. With, hey, Robert April! Yeah. And, you know, hey, I wrote a story about Robert April because I've written a story about everyone. But, <laughs> you know, uh, so... Like like I said, I, I I there are so many comic books out there you can't possibly keep up with them and still have time to write. Right. You know. Yeah. But I, I try to sample odds and ends every so often. I'll, I just recently read Dark Shadows meets Vampirella just because. Who knew there was a Dark Shadows meets Vampirella comic book? <laughs> <laughs> How could I resist? You know. Um. So. Yeah, I think there's a. Uh, it seems like there's almost a comic for anything. If you go in the shop, you're gonna find it somewhere. Well, there's a new Kiss comic now, too, if you want to follow the adventures of Kiss, the band. I remember I bought the original Kiss comic book in the 70s, the one that was, quote, printed in real Kiss blood. Oh, Ghost God. of my mother, you know, <laughs> written by Steve Gerber, as I recall. 
Well, uh, Greg, what are what are the things that are coming up next for you um, that uh, people can follow? Obviously, the Weight of World is out now. Uh, you know, at the local bookstore or um, uh, digitally. But uh, what else do you have coming out? I, I actually have a little wave coming out now. Uh, yeah, um, the Weight of Worlds, the Star Trek book, just came out like a few weeks ago. Next month, my first Leverage book comes out, titled Leverage: The Bestseller Job. And that's based on the TNT TV series about, you know, con artists with a heart of gold. That, this is actually a, a crime caper book set in the world of publishing. So this is a case of write what you know. So it's a... Excellent. And then, of course, as you mentioned, in June, we have the novelization of Man of Steel, which, like I said, I think it'll probably come out probably around the same time as the movie or maybe a day or two after the movie, just in the interest of secrecy. And that's pretty much, you know, a lot of these projects are all pretty much done now because maybe last-minute tinkers. The Leverage book actually exists. I have my author copies here on my shelf. We were making some last tiny little tweaks to the Superman book just last week, so it should be going to press now any day now. Um, I also have a short story coming out shortly in a book from Moonstone called A Collection of Stories Based on the Old Pulp Hero, The Avenger. I don't know okay. if you remember the Avenger, the mm-hmm. Kenneth Robeson character. Not not Stephen Emma, not Captain America, the old 1940s pulp character. Moonstone has a anthology of Avenger stories coming out. I wrote a short story for that just for sheer nostalgia's sake. Oh, that's great. That's coming out sometime in the next few months. I'm not sure about the exact date. I've honestly been a little focused. That was That was something I wrote just for fun, and I've been kind of focused the last few weeks just on Superman and Star Trek and everything. And Excellent. more stuff down the road. Uh, nothing that's been officially announced yet, but I've been talking to Pocket Books about doing another Star Trek novel, so somewhere down the road. And, you know, when, when, when hopes other things materialize, okay. Right, exactly. I'm sure there'll be plenty of stuff on the horizon. <laughs> well, we always kind of get nervous when you suddenly realize that, oh, there's nothing really lined up, but, you know. Yeah. Nah, but honestly, the last several years, it's been like one deadline after another. It's been mm-hmm. one book after another. So that's a very good situation to be in. So meanwhile, like I said, keeping my hand in, I'm working as a consultant editor for Tor. Oh, excellent. And my other side of I also write a lot of cover copy. The, oh, the, okay. the jacket copy on books. Mm-hmm. The Somebody has to write those copy in the back of paperback books. And that's actually been a sideline of mine now for 20, 30 years. It's oh, wow. That's great. Odd little, you know. The way to make a living as a writer is to have your fingers in lots of pots and always have little things going on. So, Yeah, I think at some point you should write a compendium of that. It's just a book of all the cover copy that you've written over the past 30 years. <laughs> just list each book as a chapter. <laughs> Probably hundreds. I, I did two. Wow. I wrote jacket copy for two books last week. Okay, you know, um, I've been doing this so long. As I joke, When I started out, I used to, when I was young and starving and needed to keep the wolf from the door, I used to write the copy for men's adult westerns. 80 bucks a shot. I read back cover copy for, you know, Slocum Ride Shotgun on the Road to Trouble or something, you know. Uh, but when you're a you're young, starving writer, you write what you can, you know. Uh, yeah. I still remember 80 bucks a shot. That was actually good money back when I was, you know. It was, yeah. Yeah, so, and I've, I've been writing literally hundreds and hundreds of, you know, they stood alone against galactic peril until she <laughs> lost her heart to the one man she hated most in the world, whatever I can do. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, 
Where can uh, our listeners follow you uh, so they know what is coming up next for Greg? And um, on the internets, is there a, is there a good place for them to follow you? Mostly my webpage, which I'm which I am behind in updating. My 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 agent scolds me about that. Uh, which is gregcox-author.com to distinguish me from the other Greg Coxes out there. Or rather easily, honestly, just plug my name into Google. I'm the first name that comes up. And it goes, takes you straight to my official website. Excellent. I, I am not the Greg Cox who is the politician in San Diego. I am not the restaurant reviewer. Um, uh, so, And I, I honestly, my, date, my website is a little out of date. I don't think I've added Superman to it yet. But... And I need to update it, upgrade it. But no, I, I try to post on the What's New page, what's coming up. That's great. And I think coming up shortly is Star Trek, Leverage, Superman, which is what sort of been consuming my life for the last year or so. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been uh, great to be able to talk to you about Weight of Worlds and then um, so many of your other books. And uh, we'll look forward to... Um, hopefully more Star Trek books by you soon, and I'll probably be picking up Man of Steel when it comes out. God bless you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. Well, Matthew, I was so thrilled to talk to Greg Cox because I have such fond memories of reading his books over the years, especially the Q Continuum books, which for some reason I, I, I remember reading them as I was commuting to work back in 98 it was so long ago, and I don't know, they just kind of stuck with me. And of course, he's done so much stuff, as we talked about in the feature, across many franchises over the years. And he, he's just one of the legends in genre fiction, and I'm so glad we got to chat with him. Yeah, um, I, I'm with you. Just getting to read his new Star Trek book, uh, The Weight of Worlds, and then getting a chance to talk to him about that, and just you know, hearing about his process and how he writes is always interesting uh, when I first get to interview and the authors with you. And then, of course, uh, you know, when I found out he was writing The Man of Steel uh, right. novelization, I couldn't be more excited. And so, you know, this, this is one of those neat things, though, um, is getting a chance to talk to these authors. And we're so thankful when they come on. And so, um, but uh, Chris, why don't we tell everyone where they can find us? Absolutely. If you want to share your thoughts about Greg Cox's work, The Weight of Worlds, Countdown to Darkness number four, you know, anything we talked about in news today, you can go to our website at trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. You can choose to send to a show and send that to Literary Treks, and that will come to us. You can also join us in our forums at trek.fm slash forums. There's a section there just for Literary Treks. There's one for books and novels, of course, for all the series as well. And uh, you can go there. And hopefully, Matthew, you're going to start that thread in the books and novels section about what you need to read to get ready for the fall, because I think that'll be very helpful to a lot of our listeners. I definitely will do that. Um, I will put that up as soon as I can I can get over there to do that. Excellent, excellent. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and on Twitter under username trekfm. Matthew, what if the listeners would like to find you personally. Well, you'll find me, of course, uh, on Trek FM doing book reviews, as well as uh, doing The Orb with you, uh, where we talk all things Deep Space Nine. And then 
Every once in a while, you'll find me on the Ready Room as well with you uh, talking about Star Trek news and uh, talking about one of the episodes from one of the various series as we go through uh, the horn, uh, as we like to call it. Um, and so... Well, don't forget about Boozum Buddies. You know, we have to talk about that as well. Well, yeah, we talk about Boozum Buddies, <laughs> ALF, um, Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> Full right. House, um, Three's Company. I mean, it, you name it, it'll come up on our show. Uh, pretty much it's real fantastic yes <laughs> yeah uh there's there's nothing better so uh and and during fight scenes and then of course you can find me on twitter uh matt rushing zero two try to tweet about all sorts of different things uh, i do tweet about some things that are not a star trek related i i do have some loves out there that uh like gray's anatomy or whatnot so you can just disregard those tweets if you're not into that kind of thing or if you are that's great yeah, and also your personal blog Oh, yes. Uh, if you would like to find my personal blog, I do have one. It is 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Um, I just write about all sorts of different things there. That's really my place to just get to do my thing. And if you'd really like to know me better, that's a great place to go. Excellent. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that username. And of course, you can find me, as Matthew mentioned, doing the Orb and doing the Ready Room each week. So um, give me a shout out there, you know, give me a follow, send me an at reply on Twitter. Let me know you followed. And I'd love to talk to you more there. And uh, lastly, Matthew, we'd like to invite everyone to try Squarespace free for 14 days and support our sponsor. No credit card required. You just go there, squarespace.com slash trek. Put in your name, put in your email address. You'll get a fully functional site, access to all the tools, absolutely free for 14 days. You could try it all out. Uh, You can import your website, as we mentioned, from WordPress, Blogger, other platforms. And I know you're going to love it. And when you sign up, you choose the annual plan. You can get a free custom domain and use offer code TREK4 and you'll save 10% off your lifetime purchase. That's squarespace.com slash trek, offer code trek4. And again, you'll be helping us bring literary treks to you each week. Well, thank you for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.